You're listening to the Own the Build podcast, where each week, Paul Hemming from C-Link interviews experts on how SME developers and contractors can transform their business through intelligent construction management. Hello and welcome to episode number 50 of the Own the Build podcast with me, Paul Hemming, and Curls. Curls, come on. What do you make of it? We're on episode number 50. Yeah, happy man. No, this is not really my thing, to be honest. (laughs) Yeah, okay. It's not my my cup of tea. Uh, No, but what is your cup of tea? Because you don't seem to like much from my experience of being your mate. I like coffee. Yeah, that's true. He does like coffee, fine. But what do you think of episode number 50? Are you happy we made it? I, yeah, I didn't think we'd get to 50, so, uh, well, I, well I, early days, I, oh, I didn't think we'd get to 50, so I'm very happy. How about you? I was reading that the average number of podcasts for a, episodes for a podcast is 30, so we're now on 50, so is we it? must be doing something right, was, yeah. I thought it was eight. No, the median is nine, and then the average is, uh, or the mean is 30, so we're getting there, we're getting there. Well, we've more than got there, in fact. Anyway, anyway girls, come on. We've, for episode 50, we have invited in, for today's mi- milestone episode, we've invited in someone who I'm really, really interested to chat to. Really significant person in the industry. So I'm pleased to welcome Helen Chorley. Helen is a property investor, a speaker, and in fact, also a uh, Sky TV show presenter uh, on the Property Elevator series. How are you today, Helen? Hello, chaps. Uh, very well, and congratulations. I'm um, very honoured to be your 50th guest. Wow, that's super impressive. Well done. Thank you very much. It's great to have you here. Hello, Helen. Thank you. So tell us, tell us about uh, the Property Elevator series to start with. Oh, sure. So the concept is kind of Dragon's Denny style. Basically, I'm one of the angel investors. There's a five of us, a panel of five of us. So we've got John Howard, Ranjan Bhattacharya, Paul Mahoney, Nicholas Woolwork, and I'm the only lady, uh, but representing it, doing it for the women there. And we have uh, potential developers, and actually some existing, they can be at kind of any stage, uh, but they come on and pitch to us, they bring a deal to us, and they want funding for that. Um, so we've seen everything from a really simple kind of quite low value flip um, somebody was um, doing his first project actually for his daughter it was a father and daughter team that was a really lovely episode that was in series two up to we've had pitches for really significant money kind of around about a million pound for a, a, a well-seasoned um, property developer um, Emmanuel from Broadwing uh, so he, he that was also series two that was a development down in Croydon so we have the whole spectrum but come on Helen tell us who if it's a bit like Dragon's Den who are you the are you the nasty guy you're like Ballantyne who, who, who do you base yourself on I I'm the I'm the I'm a numbers geek I don't, I, is there a numbers geek on Dragon's Den I don't know I don't, Liam, I don't, don't know actually I've not seen it for, uh, to be honest, I stopped watching it when Duncan Bannantyne left. Yeah, because he was, it was all over he was for all me. the fun. But, yeah. um, Somebody asked me, was I de- at, like Deborah Meaden? And I was like, I'm not sure if that's a compliment or an insult, but regardless. I like Deborah Meaden. <laughs> I know, I mean, she's quite based, isn't she? Like that. She was quite numbers, I suppose. Mm. But I wouldn't want to say Deborah Meaden because it sounds like I'm just being lazy and comparing you to the woman on Dragon's <laughs> <Day. laughs> 
token woman. Oh, you're a woman, you're a woman. I love how you got yeah, your family. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, so today's episode is titled Helen Chorley on Investor Relations as a Developer. Now, to give us some grounding, Helen, in the conversation, just explain a little bit about your life story up to this point. Tell us about yourself. Sure, sure. So um, I'm Northern, as you can hear. Uh, grew up in between uh, Liverpool and Manchester, but actually don't live in the UK at all now. Um, but the journey to get here was um, went to Oxford University, studied politics, philosophy, economics, went into investment banking from there. So worked on the trading floor at JP Morgan for 11 years. Uh, left that actually through health reasons just before the credit crunch of 2008, which actually was rather well great, timed. rather great timing. <laughs> I left yeah. at the beginning of yeah, beginning of 2008 around March. Um, that is young, fantastic, Tom. That, that's a coincidence, though, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> not, nothing to do with me. Nothing to do with me. 2008 was a very interesting year because my um, other half at the time worked at Lehman Brothers. So we had a very eventful 2008, yes, which I can now la- laugh about, but it uh, wasn't so funny at the time. But I've been investing in property. Um, I'd, I'd literally bought my own like personal property as soon as I could in my 20s. Teeny, teeny, like microscopic, honestly. Um, little tiny flat in glorified studio flat in Covent Garden in... I can't. Wow, I can never nice. remember if it was 1999 or 2000. Do you um, still have it? Then no. And you know what? Every time I go back there, I had a meeting. <laughs> you look at it. Yeah, I had a meeting at the Nomad Hotel, which is opposite the Opera House, and mm. my flat was just behind that. Ooh, and every nice. time I go back there, I think, oh my god, I wish I'd kept that. But that's a pretty amazing location to have a place oh, in my god. Garden. It was. It was absolutely amazing. But the reason I had it was because. Um, I was worked for old JP Morgan and our offices were just down by the Unilever building at Blackfriars so I could walk to work in like five, ten minutes and we started at six o'clock in the morning so I wanted to be as near as possible. I really like my sleep. I still really like my sleep. <laughs> so trading floor starting at 6am was an interesting choice for somebody that likes sleep. But yeah, I wanted to be really handy. So yeah, it was an amazing place. In your 20s, amazing place to live. Yeah. Bet, yeah. And so you're at JP Morgan in 2008, you leave and you go about doing your own things and then the entire system just crashes just yes. by coincidence as soon as you leave. But so it's 2008, you leave. Then what, what are your next steps? I had a couple of years out. So I, I started doing kind of some of my own property um, projects bought a massive house, four and a half thousand square foot house in zone one and started doing that myself. Um, and some kind of other bits and pieces, some home staging and all, all types of stuff, because I really like design and things as well. And then uh, working out kind of what to do with that next stage of my life, knew that I wanted to have the life that I've got now, so, i.e. me and Malta, and just being a passive investor. Yeah, passive bit isn't working out so well. But I thought, oh, you know, we'll go into property investment. I can invest with some developers. It'll be very hands-off. I won't need to do much. I can go and sip cocktails on the beach in Malta. Yeah, no, that never happened. It didn't happen like that. But that was what, that's what I thought could, <laughs> could happen. Um, so, yeah, I always laugh when people tell me that, it's, uh, that it can be passive because I've not found a way yet. So actually I started out doing some very small investments in crowdfunding or through crowdfunding. 
kind of trying out different developers, understanding different types of deals. So some commercial stuff, some resi stuff. So a bit of everything and understanding. It was a really, really good way for me to learn, actually, to, to, to get involved, to watch how people do things or don't do things, you know, see who does and delivers on what they say they will do and see how well or not, as the case is in a couple of instances, uh, they handle investor relations, which... I, well, certainly when I started doing this, I mean, I don't even think any any developer had heard of the phrase investor relations, <laughs> to, to be honest. What's what's changed it then to, for it now to be a term? Is it is it the crowdfunding side of things? Was that like a something that kind of engineered it? I think that's probably helped because by the sheer nature of, you know, you can have, oh, I don't know, like, you know, 20, 40, probably up to, I guess, 100 or, you know, whatever amount, is you know, depending on what, what they're raising. And obviously, actually, crowdfunding came about because they wanted to, because it had to become um, FCA compliant. Otherwise, deals where there's more than one passive, and I quote, you know, in bracket, in quotes, um, passive investor, um, would be a collective investment scheme. So that's where that setup came from. And by the nature of having to communicate with multiple investors, and you know, whilst we are all termed sophisticated, there is le- that that's a spectrum. So you'll get some people who haven't done much before, and you will get some people from you know financial background like me. And you need to be able to communicate and update all of those people. So you know, certainly many of the um, platforms started having kind of investor relations people because they had to provide monthly updates. Yes. And so what does a typical investment for you currently look like, just for context? Oh, it can be all types of things. I generally like to work with people that I've gotten to know over time. So hence, you know, when I started, as I said, I started very small and I mean really small, kind of pocket money small, just to kind of dip my toe in the water. And to be honest, I still like doing that. The numbers are bigger now, but I still, I wouldn't go in, you know, full size, huge, you know, investment day one with a brand new developer and, you know, chuck a shed load of money at them. It's like, let's try a bit first. Let's see how that works out. Let's see, can we work together? You know, do I drive them mad? Do they drive me mad? How is the communication? You couldn't drive anyone mad, man. I don't believe that for a second. My parents are here at the moment. They would beg to differ with you. <laughs> um, Fair enough. But, but a lot of my stuff is kind of new build. Some of the stuff is, uh, is yeah, it's converting kind of office but bigger stuff office to resi sometimes has a commercial element but also the stuff that i'm interested in has evolved over time so it's difficult for me to say there's a typical kind of deal for example i'm just doing well actually no i'm 18 months into my first land planning deal uh, so that's been a whole learning curve as i'm sure you can imagine a lot of patience required there I, you know and, and i've literally i've taken you know i've gradually stepped up uh, complexity of deal and and risk I suppose you know it's very risk averse I still am kind of quite risk averse but um, I felt like I I understood enough to again dip my toe in the water with this planning deal it's not something I would have done from day one and I wouldn't recommend that to anybody day one go straight in with planning so uh, I have a phrase it's actually one of John Martini's phrases earn your right to risk and, and I really, you know, abide by that. I like to understand what I'm getting into. You know, can you understand every facet of it? No, of course you can't. But 
you know, if you if you give yourself a good grounding, baby steps I can, to take a, more. Yeah, risk. exactly. Okay. A sensible, sensible, you. you know, way. And we're going to talk about investor relations because you're an investor and you know what you want from developers. What is the term investor relations to you? To me, it, it's it's really simple. It's really, really simple. In fact, it's communication. And it, that can mean different things to different people. And the key to investor relations, the key to that communication is to find out what your investor wants. What does that mean to your investor? So for me, if I'm your investor, I like to be kept up to date. I like detail. I like information. Does it need to be every week? Probably not. Does it need to be more than once a month? Probably. Do you have to do, you know, some beautiful uh, report, you know, 10-page report? No, no, no. Pick up the phone. Tell me this is going on. That's going on. Quick video around site. But give me the detail that I'm going to want. So obviously, you know, with my background, I like to know where we are on the numbers. I like to know if we're on budget. I like to especially know because it affects my return uh, percentage-wise. Are we on? Uh, how's the time scale looking? Is there anything on the horizon? And ideally, actually, before we go to, to that part, ideally, you'll have had this conversation before you even get into a deal. Because once you're in the deal, it's a little bit late to be having that. I mean, still have it, but you really should have had that conversation up front. Because if you've got an investor like me that wants regular updates, communication, wants to know what's going on, wants to know what's happening to the, the, the money, and you don't have the capacity to be able to provide that, it's going to frustrate both parties. Yeah, it's going to be a nightmare. Exactly. It's going to be annoying for me because I'm going to be pestering, going, what's happening, what's happening, what's happening? And you're going to be like, well, that bloody woman, just leave me alone. You know, and that's... that's oh, that's like I said, I, can't, I just can't imagine that. I just can't imagine that, Helen. But, <laughs> so, and again, this, this is probably a really stupid question and there is an obvious answer, but perhaps not. Why do you want, as an investor... Updates, you said, not once a week, but more than once a month. What is it that you're trying to extract? Is it just comfort or...? Maybe it's comfort. Um, also, you know, I'm not a developer. I'm not a contractor. So I like to under I like to understand things. I also like, I'm a bit geeky, as you kind of guess from my background. I like to learn things. I also have quite a problem-solving brain. So I like to know what challenges are being faced. And, and for me understanding and learning from the process all helps me it or I filter it all into like my my due diligence for the next project so I will learn something on every deal I will learn something I'll learn more than one thing I'll probably learn 10 things that are like oh remember to ask that next time remember to ask that next time so you know I, I talk a lot and do a lot of talk uh, speaking on due diligence and when I started off, I used to say when I started off, I had like about a hundred point like due diligence check checklist. And um, the beginning of this year, I shared something that um, an American family office had 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 written about how they've all stepped up due diligence and they've got like a they they then said they've got a hundred point checklist. I'm like, well, mine's probably at two hundred. And like I say, I must add ten things. I must, in fact, I must add one thing a week chatting to somebody yesterday and I'm like oh my god I need to add that to my due, due diligence list is that is that from the culture that you uh of finance finance is obviously due diligence heavy I guess on many many deals is that what 
drives your thinking, do you think, that foundation? Probably. I do have an obsession about risk and, and understanding risk and trying to mitigate risk. And again, it's another like one of my pet subjects. Um, we, we do a chat on every Sunday with um, you know some other guys in property. Uh, we do this live and literally we, we cannot get through an hour's chat without mentioning the risk at least, you know, kind of 10 times. So, so maybe it is because I, I feel like certainly from an investor and actually a developer perspective, there's a lot of risk involved, but risk isn't always called risk in property and I feel like if people people were I feel like if people were more understood more about the risks that they're taking so for example at the moment like contingency you know everybody puts in like or or when I see appraisals or 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 pitches nobody's got like a five percent and then it's just standard oh it's five percent you just put five percent in like hang on hang on hang on like what is in that? Why have you got 5%? You might not need 5%, unlikely. You might need a lot more. In this environment, you guys know better than me. Look what's happened to material, material prices. prices. or whatever else, yeah. <clears throat> tell me, tell me that your 10% contingency ain't going to get swallowed up at the moment. Yeah, well, it's been 25%, hasn't it, in the last 12 months? So yeah. Exactly. So th- there's lots of these different kind of risks like I said, that aren't necessarily called risk in property, that I'm like, have you thought about that? Have you thought about that? Have you thought about that? And that is where I get do get <laughs> do get annoying. And like I say, it's where I can learn every time. So, Helen, have you ever had a developer push back? Um, on item 99 of your 100-point due diligence list? <laughs> on uh, at some point, not necessarily on a, on a single point, but push back and say, you know, I, I, this is too much. Or you're asking for, you know, in, with regards to investor relations, they may not call it that. Have you experienced that? Uh, so at the beginning, in terms of due, do, due, doing the due diligence, they don't normally push back. Although I do try and ask a couple of tricky questions just to see how they'll react under pressure because you don't know how somebody's going to react or I find until their back is against the wall and at some point in any development project and again you will know this that's going to happen that is going to happen is this person going to crumble are they going to get defensive and go not me it's not me it's not my fault uh you know I've seen that more times than honestly I I care to remember so now I'm like well let's find that out up front so I've had um I don't get too much pushback ahead of time because they're trying to get the money so of course they play ball yeah exactly yeah. Oh, it sounds like yes say yes you put them through that training first to see how they respond well exactly but but, but yeah. then you know that's that's making up both our lives easier for us isn't it but i have had pushback once i'm in a deal where a developer has failed to to honor what they agreed to in terms of of providing those updates and at that point, you know, or actually, on, 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 I was going to say at least a couple of instances where the developers disappeared altogether. And, and I don't mean like they've left the project. They've just ceased, ceased and desisted communication. And at that point, you're like, oh, my God, what on a, what could be so <laughs> Where's bad? Where's my money? What's happening? That yeah. They don't want to tell us. So yeah. that's huge alarm bells for me. Yeah, now. alarm bells ringing massively there. Okay, so look, this is really interesting, but let's talk a little bit more right after this break. Own the Build is brought to you from our sponsor, Sealink. 
software used by developers and main contractors to manage subcontract procurement in one place. Find subcontractors, automate tenders and contracts, control construction program, compare prices, and improve project profitability with C-Link. To find out more, head to c-link.com. Now back to the show. Now, Helen, I know that you don't want to give away all of your secrets. In fact, you just told me that on on the break. (laughs) (laughs) But you you, you do talk about due diligence a lot in, I see that you've done webinars, you've written about it quite a bit, and we've talked about it briefly here. What are the key facets of your due diligence? I I call it rates and rents, and I just do that so that I remember it basically. But it covers a lot of what you would expect what is it? Return amount, time frame, exit, like fundamental question, security, worst case scenario. That's my question that I, to put the developer under pressure, worst case scenario. And also what's the worst thing that's ever happened? What's the biggest disaster? Because then you see if they will actually admit that to you or not. Um, what else is that? Risks to understand what they perceive as risks which might be different from what I see. So that's always an interesting question. Uh, yeah, numbers. But the, so there's that side of things that are the things about the, like the deal in and of itself. But also I want to understand kind of about the person, the developer, what drives them and how their mind works. And also if it is crowdfunded, you need to do due diligence on the crowdfunding platform as well, because you know some are, some are way better than others. You know, and some have gone, have gone bust over the past few years yeah. so you need to be so that is, shocking you know, stories yes, hasn't there yeah, yeah there really has so you know just because it's out there and looks professional and is fca regulated that doesn't mean anything so there's so many different there's so many aspects to due diligence and like i say it's as much for me it's as much the person if not slightly more so than the deal itself you know a deal is a deal is a deal um, unless it's got kind of you know, additional benefits, it's, um, there's, there's a social impact or there's a wider impact to the community, which obviously really appeals. Um, but I have to know that I can work with that person as well. And as we've touched on, like, they won't drive me mad and I won't drive them mad, more importantly. Helen, beyond um, wanting to feel that, you know, you can work with that other person, how would you describe, from your perspective, what the profile of an idea deal developed to work with for you oh so uh, well I'll describe one person so when I get asked what my favorite deal is this this person kind of comes to mind and the reason that it's my favorite deal I mean it was actually was ahead of time it was risk mitigated at good returns blah 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 all it ticked all those boxes but actually again it was more about the person so I went down um my preference and it's been a little more challenging to do this obviously the past couple of years is i want to meet the developer and i want to see the site before i'll hand over any money so we did that on a deal it was a crowdfunding deal with crowd with us actually and went down to meet the developer and i wouldn't say he was your average developer because actually he had a finance background as well um he had an ma in real estate finance 
Um, so maybe like I, maybe we just gelled because of like the numbers geekiness. But when he talked through kind of all the projects that he'd done before, so he was obviously experienced. And it's not to say I wouldn't invest with a new developer. I have done, but they need the right guidance around them. Like I say, I, I really, as much as I like information, I like to be hands off. So he'd done a lot of stuff um, previously successfully. Um, he was happy to talk about the challenges that he had had. But on top of that, there was a real couple of like little like really clever things so he'd got some grant money for one of the projects that he'd done i'd never heard of that being an option for what he'd done before and to have gone into and found out that detail that quite impressed me and also the way he talked about um, some challenges that he had had and i've actually had that with somebody else before as well revealing you know what has gone wrong or challenges challenges you've had or when you've lost money Developers sometimes think that's going to put off an investor. I would say if you can explain what you learned from it, how you recovered from it, hopefully how you paid your investor back and didn't kind of leave them high and dry, that builds kind of credibility and trust. And when I spoke to this guy, the way he talked about his challenges and how he'd overcome them, I really liked he was a very kind of like outside the box thinker. And I said to somebody else that was um, thinking about investing at the time, I said, if and when the beep hits the fan, he can get us out of it. I just know he's just got that type of, again, problem-solving mind. He, there was, he will leave no stone unturned to get us out of this. That's a really important um, thing as well, isn't it? Being able to um, openly admit challenges have happened and there have been failings before. And this is what I did in that situation, because like you said earlier, Helen, challenges are going to happen and there are going to be failures on any project and you have got to recover from it. Do you also, we've talked about it quite a bit, Kels, haven't we, where we say, you know, different types of property developer usually have someone who is either construction background or a finance background as kind of two examples. Is there, you're clearly a finance person by background do you are you drawn to people in who have a construction background because you think oh that's something that I can't bring as an investor is that something that rhymes with you I suppose it depends on what the project is and what's most appropriate and you know whilst I, I kind of talk the same language as people with you know kind of financy or numbersy background you know the ones that that are on the ground, hands dirty, have been doing it for 30 years, have seen everything that there is to possibly go wrong. So again, you know, if and when something goes wrong, they can get you out of it. I mean, that's incredibly reassuring. And it's where I've seen some of the um, the people that have come into development from another career, sometimes where they have struggled a little bit because they haven't been, you know, on a site from 16, you know, getting their hands dirty and necessarily have all the connections on that side of things. So I think, you know, the ideal would, you know, God, my favourite answer to most things, both. You'd have a bit of both, wouldn't you? But but yeah, it, it depends what 
the project is. And I guess what that actually means is what are the perceived risks? What are the major challenges going to look like? If it's, you know, if it's a quick flip on a, you know, there's not that much really that needs doing. It's, you know, it's either a paper exercise of, you know, you're going to go, uh, you know, get a bit of planning or do PD or it's a quick refurb or something. Construction do, expertise doesn't matter. Does it yeah. matter so much? Whereas, you know, an, an out of the ground, right, we're going to need a survey on this, a survey on this, a, you know, blah, 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 blah. a more complex build, you think I want to be aligned with perhaps then, someone. Then I want to know it's somebody that knows what they're doing and the fact that, I don't know, there might be a Roman ruin under, that we discover under something. I want to know that they've thought of that and have planned for that and also that that is in the Have budgets. you ever had that? I've not, but I know a friend who, I know a friend who has. And yeah, that's, <laughs> really? Yeah, uh, yeah, incredibly challenging, incredibly challenging. You I know, bet, yeah. actually, so again, they sorted it all out beautifully, but not really the type of surprise you want, is there? Definitely not at the start of the job. So we've talked about the due diligence that you do. You would always hope, I'd imagine, that the developers also want to do their due diligence on you. What are the best questions you have been asked? Oh, oh well, Liam asked one earlier, didn't he? <laughs> Liam asked, I bet you come on then, don't say that. He's, you've made his... Unbelievable. Yeah, thank, thank you, Helen. <laughs> That's, uh, Liam's question was the can, best I've ever had. We can wrap this up now. <laughs> um, no, absolutely. I, I wrote an article. It's probably about time to, to republish that um, about how due diligence and like investor relations actually is like dating. It has to work both ways. I can't rock up, or the person with the money can't rock up and go right. You have to meet all my demands, and I'm not going to give you anything. You know, this is two way, and it has to be two way. And, and and that's why it's really important that you get. Um, an investor or investors that that match kind of where you're at like do you have the time to be educating somebody that's kind of really new to property if you do and that floats your boat fabulous if you don't don't take on somebody that needs hand-holding as an investor as a, as a new first-time investor it really has to match so I, I think understanding what the investor uh, what the investors' expectations are. So again, do they want a phone call every day? I'm not being funny. Some people do. So actually, from that perspective, I look like a very laid-back investor. Um, you know, do they not... They can't really want a phone call every day, surely, that level of communication is... Some people, if it's their first deal, if they're handing over a, a decent amount of money, and I mean a decent amount of money again to them, that's something that should be asked. It's not about, I know somebody that invested £2,000 in something and made the developer's life hell. And I'm not saying £2,000 isn't a lot of money. £2,000 relative to the cost of that build was a very, very small amount of money. But that £2,000 was that person's life savings. Yeah. So that's an important question, right? Do not take all of somebody's life savings. You are going to have a highly emotional investor on your hands. They are going to be on your case. Was that a crowdfunded? That deal? one was, actually, yes. How um, do you, as a developer, manage a crowdfunded deal where, of the overall deal, one part of the pie is 2000 which is someone's life savings, but... Is there not like a lead investor who like runs the communications? Because that must be a bit of a nightmare. 
It depends, and different platforms do it different ways. There are also, uh, I must point out now, there are also parameters and guidelines for um, investors. And actually, not everybody, not everybody can invest in every deal now. And there's also much more guidance around only putting kind of like 10%, I can't remember the, what exactly the metrics are, something like 10% of, um, you know, kind of your pot per deal. So th there's certainly much more advice to investors than there was when I started. So I would say that that's a little bit better. But to understand, you know, what what numbers people are talking and what that money represents to them. And I just wouldn't, even if you need it, I just wouldn't take all take of somebody's it, no. parts because... No, it makes perfect sense. They're going to think, rightly or wrongly, wrongly, they're going to think they own you. Yeah, and but it's going to they, be so critical to them. They're going to be so yeah. risk-averse, aren't they? But an interesting yeah. question that's going around in my mind then, because there has been a couple of, and I'm by no means an expert on crowdfunding for property, but there has been a couple of horror stories in the last few years. Has it been a good thing for the industry, in your opinion? I think it has, because... Uh, in two aspects so for investors uh, like for me getting started like I say literally uh, I'm going to say my first investment was £2,000 I was not the person that caused all the <laughs> it trouble was you. Wasn't, wasn't. we knew it I knew it <laughs> it wasn't me <laughs> but my first investment was £2,000 um, and you know, like normally to get involved with kind of um, developments, you know, you need an awful lot bigger kind of pot than that. So it allowed me to dip my toe in the water and that still is available that people can um, get access to deals and get access to returns, you know, much better than ordinary savings returns with the small with smaller pots so i think from that perspective it's really good i think it's great for developers in terms of there's this whole new kind of area of like alternative finance if you will um, and once they build up kind of track record or credibility in those investors eyes then if you keep again we're going back to you know how important investor relations is if you can build that up with a with a you know a group of investors then you've made your life easier because you don't need to keep going out finding new ones all the time. You, you know, you've got you've got your own you've got your own little ready-made kind of fan base. You did what you did. You looked after their money. You delivered, hopefully on time-ish. We know it was always a bit of a sway on that one, isn't there? And then you know, next thing you're like, well, they all backed me last time. And I did and a good it, job. Yeah. Bang. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, and, and exactly. And, and people that have done well have done right by me. You know, things go wrong. And I think as an investor or somebody putting the money up, I think you need to be, you know, that's one thing I would say, you know, that investors could do better. Have a little bit more flexibility on this stuff. This is development, right? But if there's a £2,000 investment at any point, alarm bells must ring because it's, it's either Helen or it's someone with their entire life savings. So whatever happens, £2,000 be scared. <laughs> What were you going to say, Liam? I was going to ask Helen. I was just curious. Uh, clearly, the, the motivate the primary motivation for an investor, I presume, is a financial one. But if you put that to one side, are there any other consistent secondary motivations for an investor that a developer should consider when they're approaching investors? Yes, and that's an excellent question. That's exactly what you should again, be asking. He? 
Yo, he doesn't talk much, but he's good when he does, doesn't he? <laughs> well, that's, you, but you can see if you if you I, I see this all the time. You can see he's in focus, like he's not listening to anything. He's just trying to think of a question. And I mean, bang, I'm really it flies listening. out. I'm, I'm, I'm trying my best. <laughs> but that that is what should be asked. That's an amazing question to ask a potential investor. Like, why are you thinking about this? Why are you thinking about investing with me? So I know a lot of people, and again. If you, the more you understand about your investor, the more you'll begin to kind of like work that out. So if it's somebody, you know, younger in their 20s, probably got more risk appetite, probably happier to take on greater risk. So need less security. So you don't have to offer them first charge. Um, they'd be happy with either an equity or maybe a second charge or maybe just, uh, you know, even a an RX or something on a property. So that that's one. And this is where like defining what that, that investor avatar looks like. Whereas a me, like actually, I get offered so much now because of, you know, being on the TV and doing lots of talks. I get inundated, to be honest, with deals. So when I'm looking for something, yes, I want the numbers to be right and I want it to be secure. I want it to be somebody that, that I can trust and build a long-term relationship with. So I'm not really interested in doing one-off deals and I have to go and find a new developer every at the time it's the reverse of what we just said i want to build um you know much as if the developer looks after the investors you don't have to find new investors the other way around too i want to keep working with somebody i'm not transactional i'm much more relational so i want to build that and if they keep doing and keep you know work it work it out well i'm happy to keep going back with them but how do i differentiate or how do I, you know, choose when I've got, you know, five deals on the table? They're all much of a muchness in terms of they're great people to work with. They're all offering the same returns. They're all offering the same kind of risk reward. Well, actually, then that's what I'm looking at. Okay, well, what is the social impact? What is the is there a, a better, you know, an impact for the community? Can we make a difference to people's lives here? So I've got a friend. She's one of my property sisters. So I'm a co-founder in Property Sisters as well. That that community. And a friend in there, Lisa Brown, does a lot on um, supported living. So I haven't done anything in that area yet. But again, like I'm taking my time to learn and understand it. But that really appeals that you can make a tangible difference to, you know, to, to these people's lives that in, in just the a much bigger, and, yeah, a much bigger and broader way than, than traditional. Well, you, you build a nice flat and you're, you're giving homes to people. That, that's lovely. Don't knock, you know, I'm not, not knocking that at all. But where there's a bigger impact, like... Yeah, I'd like to be involved in you know in that stuff as well. So so it's again it's about understanding your investor like what's important to them. Because what you'll also then find is they might give up some percent of return if they're not purely numbers and money driven to be involved in something like that because actually that helps them sleep better at night. That helps them feel warm and fuzzy inside or whatever it is. Which is why you've got to do your due diligence both ways at the start have investor relations both ways and be talking and really communicating. Talk to us briefly. I know we could talk all day here, Helen, but sadly we haven't got all day. Talk to us briefly about Property Sisters because we were introduced uh, via one of your Property Sisters, if you like, uh, yes. Carolina from Adam Sheet. But tell us about Property Sisters briefly. Oh, yes, yes. That's exactly who introduced us. So it, that's Carolina um, of Adam Sheik, uh, Claire Norwood, who's a developer herself and who is amazing she is the queen of investor relations so if you want to know anything about that reach out to her and um, the lovely uh, Gillian uh, Ruth and Gillian Hobbs um, who are um, investors and developers themselves 
Uh, so it's kind of all, all of us that put this together and we did it for it's not a oh, I hope you can tell from a from my background and b from the way I talk we're not men haters you know we're not like <laughs> oh let's do women's thing let's just make it women only the, the idea of it is that even for me coming from so my college at Oxford was a rugby college you know I worked on a trading floor with 96% men but even for me, rocking up to that first property um, property meet in London, 2015, I think it was, or 2014, I was really intimidated. I walked into a room, it's all men in suits, uh, looking really serious. Unfortunately, they were offering red wine, so I had to straight, straight for that, give myself a little bit of Dutch courage. And, and what we want, and I'm like, if I, who I'm used to that, I'm going to feel intimidated. And... Um, you know, sit there and kind of not ask questions because you don't look stupid. Like, actually, we want to create an environment where women can just go, listen, I've got a, re and I know it's a really stupid question, and I know I should know the answer to this, but can you help me with this? And that's what we wanted to create, just like a safe space, if you will, so that so people could say, actually, has anybody got an experience with this? I I'm having this problem. Does anybody know a great QS? Does anybody know this? A and that's what it's about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And, and that's what it's about. It's about supporting other women. And it's also about... The, the, my favourite bit of it is... Um, we've not done it too often lately, but we were in lockdown. We were holding kind of weekly calls, sharing successes. And I think that's really important, you know, for, for anybody, that you get inspired by seeing other people's successes. And it's not a, woohoo, you know, look out, oh my God, I'm so great, I'm so great. It's a recognising that actually, you know what, you just got through, you just got through the week. You didn't kill somebody. You know, it can be, it can be that, but just uh, share something and know that other people are going through stuff as well and particularly i see that when i'm helping investors out who are struggling to get money back from invest uh, from developers um you know fortunately that is the minority but just knowing that somebody else has been there or has experienced the same or has gotten through that is, is really helpful so that's what it's all about we have only met two of the property sisters in yourself and Carolina and both of you have been incredibly interesting people to speak to and I feel like we could talk for a long time Helen but sadly these shows are only so long so I wanted to say thank you so much for coming on the show and tell us or tell the listeners where they can find you if if they would like to. Sure, absolutely. No, it's been an absolute pleasure. Carolina recommends said you must do this, and I'm so glad I listened to her. So that was super. <laughs> um, yeah, so our, uh, we have a YouTube channel, Property Sisters YouTube, UK YouTube. Um, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn, Helen Chorley. I'm quite active on Insta. It, it, mine is my Insta is is work and uh, and and play. So I do stupid things on Insta as well. Don't take my tips <laughs> out too seriously. So um, yeah, reach out to me there, Helen Chorley Investor. I am on Insta. Awesome. And we'll put Helen's details on the podcast description. And like I say, thank you so much for coming on, Helen. Liam, we did it. We did number 50. I think we can all go and have a, a long lie down now and be pleased with ourselves. Glass of champagne, surely. Yeah, something like that. Something like that. Liam doesn't drink. I've probably drunk too much, so maybe, maybe we'll put that well, on. Between us, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, a, yeah. it's a balanced relationship with alcohol. Yeah, <laughs> well, no, that's, that's what joke. we can that's say. A joke, that's a... But uh, no, it was great uh, speaking with you, Helen. That was fantastic. Awesome. I will see you next week, Liam. And thanks so much, Helen. Cheers, guys. Cheers, Paul.